This is Pop Culture Club. I'm Jim Laskowski. Directors Jeremy Saulnier and John Carney both have something in common for their two new films. They capture reckless youth and wild abandon through very different musical soundscapes and essentially genre storytelling. One is as hardcore punk rock as it gets with gritty realism and unpredictability, while the other is focused on young love and instant infatuation. For Green Room director Jeremy Saulnier, it's all about letting his characters be imperfectly human in the moment, even when danger approaches, allowing the audience to constantly feel on edge. But it's also about the moments we're not used to seeing in a genre picture. The films I make are often like, can be described as the cutting room floor of an action movie. How do we get to, from, from A to B to C, like every little step I want to see it. I don't want to cut just to the, let's get to the, get to the plot. Like the, my plot is in detail. For Sing Street director John Carney, it's more about sketching a place in time when teenagers put emotion front and center as a catalyst to figure out their sense of self, which any adult can probably recall even if they weren't writing songs themselves in high school. But really just, you know, could, could, could you, can you relate to this story, can, you know, the, which is hopefully more universal, I mean, the more universal the better in a sense. I mean, you want it to be, the minutia of the film to be specific to the 80s and to your story, but you want the story itself to feel universal. And then, later in the show, I sit down for a more intimate conversation with songwriter Shelby Cyphers about relishing the kindness of strangers and a whole lot more. We lift up people who create things um, for our entertainment and yet don't necessarily always lift up the people who create things, um, you know, those, those giants whose shoulders we stand on who fought for civil rights. Um, gay rights, animal rights. Welcome to Pop Culture Club. Hello, everyone. Well, this is an exciting triple bill that I have lined up today. Whoo, boy. Uh, I'm very excited because, uh, I mean, initially it was just going to be, you know, movie-centric, but then I thought, what do all of these three interview subjects have in common? I mean, granted, Shelby Cyphers isn't uh, directing indie films, but at the same time, the common link here is, you know, pretty pretty obvious. It's, it's music and the love of music that, uh, you know, sort of fuels a little bit uh, all of all three guests. I mean, we we, we start my my conversation with Shelby is, is interesting in that it starts off on a different note, simply because I wanted uh, a, a, an interesting take on why somebody would write songs, or why somebody, or why a musician as talented as her chooses to focus energy elsewhere, and I think you'll get a kick out of that. So I hope you'll stick around despite maybe Shelby's name isn't um, quite as familiar as the two directors. I mean, you'll at least be familiar with their work. I, I'm positive of that. Uh, but at the same time, I think, I think it's a really, a really safe bet that all three conversations are going to be engaging for you. At least that's my hope here by s- sort of putting them all together in one lump sum. And, you know, recently I've had the immense pleasure of being in touch with a couple of wonderful publicists, 
who offered me the opportunity to talk with two directors that I could not wait to converse with. I mean, uh, granted, it would be wonderful to just simply do a full half hour to an hour long conversation with each of them, but time is of the essence. They both have very busy schedules promoting their latest endeavor, and you know, I think you're going to want to rush out to see their films in a theater. These are two movies that you don't want to watch at home on Netflix. Both Green Room and Sing Street are meant to be shared in a communal experience, uniting uh, a very <laughs> overly enthused audience. So especially, you know, I could see this, I could see something like Green Room and Sing Street just like becoming cult midnight cult hits that would play at the music box later down the road. So both of these films, you absolutely, I implore you to see them in a theater. I think, especially after hearing these brief interviews, you're going to be interested in, um, you know, seeing their inspiration come to, come to fruition right before your eyes. And here we learn about that inspiration and their process. I know, like I said, previous interviews, tend to go much longer, more akin to the Shelby Cyphers interview that closes the show, but I was very grateful, very, very grateful to see their new films, because I was anticipating them for one, but also just to talk with them, because it's it's really, uh, it's, it's really interesting to get a, a different perspective from the actual creator, because you have this idea in your mind, and when it's challenged, or when it's elaborated on it to some degree it's just you get a sense of gratification from that experience and i hope you do too out of uh just listening to them talk so you know like i mentioned i i decided to include shelby cyphers in this simply because she's a musician that i've long since admired that i hope you'll be just excited to learn about as i was but first let's get caught up in the pure visceral thrill ride that is jeremy saulnier's green room You'll remember that a couple years ago he broke out onto the scene with Blue Ruin. And, yet, and and also six years prior to that, he garnered kind of a cult following with his horror comedy Murder Party, which I recently caught up and kind of enjoyed. But Blue Ruin is, uh, oh man, it's a, it's a huge step up. And I, it was one of the best movies of that year. So I was really, really anticipating to see what, what, what this director was going to do next. And this time around, Green Room is kind of a, how would I put this? I guess a claustrophobic war picture, all taking place in the confines of the backstage area of an underground punk rock venue in the middle of nowhere while on tour. Oh, this, this premise alone has got to get you excited. Um... Band members include Anton Yelchin and Aaliyah Shawcat, who wind up witnessing something they shouldn't have seen, and the consequences of that action are pretty dire. Venue manager Patrick Stewart shows up in a role that you have to see to believe, and he's not only hoping to resolve the situation, but willing to go to any lengths to do so. He's surrounded by bigoted believers, uh, pretty much of the Nazi variety, and the kind of tension that accumulates for me recalled the work of Walter Hill and John Carpenter and films where a group of individuals band together for the purposes of survival. So 
I talk with Jeremy about how this story came to be and how he feels about some of the extreme outbursts of violence sprinkled throughout that the whole audience reacted to. And I think it was an incredibly successful screening experience on every level. This is his most intense film to date. I can't recommend it enough. Here is my brief conversation with Green Room director Jeremy Saulnier. Hi there, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Excellent. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I really like the three films of yours that I've seen. You, you definitely continue to evolve. Thank you. There's there's a true sense of precision and confidence that goes into your films, whether if it's the uh, fast-moving chaos and murder party, the minutia of revenge and blue ruin, and for Green Room, you focus so intensely on the visceral response of being in the moment where anything unexpected could happen, which kind of fits the punk rock aesthetic in a way. Um, so talk about sure. what inspired you to tell this particular story. Yeah, I just, I've always loved the punk rock hardcore scene. I was part of it in the 1990s. Um, I don't have a lot of archives of it, though. It was pre-internet, you know, and it was so experiential. You, mm-hmm. you had to show up. You had to be there. Um, but also, I just uh, enamored with the, the energy and and and, and the, the visual opportunities. So while I was in the hardcore scene in the 90s, I was, I was sort of becoming a filmmaker, too. I, the same crews I was in bands with, I was making films with on the side. So I, I always had this association with music and movies. And then after Blue Ruin, uh, I had a certain amount of success that I never expected. And I thought it'd be fun to not do the logical thing and step up and do a big studio ensemble movie or something way out of my depth. I, I, I figured I, I had this idea that's been floating around my head for almost 10 years, and it was a punk rock band in the holding area, a green room of a concert venue, while a live show was taking place. So that, the energy there, the the potential was was huge. Um, and then I had I had really good foreknowledge of the hardcore scene which I hadn't seen really portrayed properly on um, any films to date. I'm sure there's a few exceptions. I haven't seen every film. But um, I just plunged into it, and I did something that I thought would be more of an homage to, to my upbringing cinematically and musically. And once I had this sort of premise, uh, it was both very familiar to me. Um, the plot itself was, was totally uncharted. So I had this great sort of crossroads where I could finally realize uh, a film that I've been trying to get made for for over for almost a decade, and then it also be totally brand a brand new experience when I was writing it. So I could surprise myself. I could go off off the map and kind of be uninhibited and unfiltered to make a film that I thought would be true to the characters and hyper intense because. I, I did not adhere to formula, um, you know, or I didn't intend to adhere to formula, or I wouldn't let it guide me. Right. And um, I was able to kind of just use this insanely visually rich, aggressive musical scene and mine it for all that energy and then kind of let, shed that eventually and just 
subject to a, a very intense, rather accessible siege thriller scenario. So it's really fun to kind of blend all these worlds. It's a real success. I mean, as much as Blue Ruin was your take on a revenge film, this was more of a survival story meets war film. The environment was such a strong component in a way that it kind of recalls my favorite horror film, John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you have all these obstacles to overcome, like adding dogs or including the use of feedback. So there's something about your attention to detail that feels really grounded in reality rather than tacked on, which is true when it comes to the sudden violence that takes place um, in Green Room. What is your process in trying to envision how someone is going to meet their demise and how it gets executed in the film? Like, what is your philosophy surrounding um, portraying violence? Well, in general, like, as far as like you know, deciding who goes and when, that's the fun part because I don't yeah. plan that. I mean, I have a general arc of the film. I, I do know where it has to end up thematically and and somewhat plot-wise. But um, I let them make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I have it their characters, and I and I really try and be logical. But but you know, when there really aren't solutions for them, I'm not going to have a, some sort of narrative convenience come in and, and save the day. <laughs> um, I'm going to let someone die if, if they make the wrong choice and they end up between, you know, a couple of bad situations and one involves a pit bull and one involves a skinhead with a machete. You know, it's, it's, it's a lose-lose. But I do think you, you touched on that earlier. Like, I mine, even though this is a fictional environment, I mine it for opportunity. I really dig in and I say, well, what what is there? How, how do I utilize the space? We are in a concert venue, so there is, yeah, all kinds of um, amplifiers and microphones and dark hallways and um, kitchens and bars. Like, so I, I just started to think, just physically, what do I have? What, what do these characters have? And it's really fun to challenge myself and, and and not make it easy. But when I find great solutions within this this fictional environment, I. Um, I, I go all in and, and really utilize it. So then that, that's the fun is, is, is I, I am a feed for details and I find things I think some other writers might not find because I'm not really looking to satisfy the screenplay. I'm looking to looking within this fictionalized world that I visualize. So when, when I write, I actually see the movie unfold as I type. So it really helps me get my bearings and to dig into things that, you know, others might overlook. And as far as the violence itself, I just have to have a really strong emotional character component to it. You know, it has to be high impact and you just feel that loss. Um, yeah. And then I balance it out because I also, I love, you mentioned John Carpenter's thing. I, I, that's, that's a huge influence on me as far as creating tension um, in an enclosed environment and having a phenomenal makeup show. That, that movie is just, <laughs> On the, on the strictly arts and crafts level, just phenomenal. You right. Know, Rob Bakun's work there. So I, I so once in a while, I'll, I'll say, you know, let's have a gratuitous close-up of this amazing makeup effect. But usually that's a non-fatal occurrence. When, when, when there is a loss of life in, in film, I, I treat it with a certain amount of reverence. And I think that is what makes the film so tense, is, is you don't really know how to feel at times. You know that there's, you feel a real risk. Um, and 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 a very high stakes sensation when when anyone who dies it's it's like 
it's a shock and it takes a big emotional toll. Um, since I know our time is limited, I just want to say that uh, I love the film and as a huge fan of 80s cinema, you really managed to capture the kind of film I used to rent with my friends. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, there should definitely be a VHS version of Green Room. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think so. It, it, I think you stepped up your game big time here. The the shock and awe with the great payoffs is really really spectacular, and the whole audience felt it too. The, definitely, the goal here is to create that experience where um, it is truly terrifying, but it's also thrilling. It's also yeah. exhilarating, and um, and it's it's just this pressure cooker um, that 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 should be enjoyed hopefully collectively by an audience but um where i'm just i'm trying to yet sort of re reinvigorate the cinema as i knew it from the 80s so it's sort of like john carpenter style like just badass siege movie with a synthetic score without being too you know self-aware you know i'm right. trying to make it a, a, a pure vision whenever i can but there's no doubt that i'm influenced by all the films i've ever seen and uh for certain the master john carpenter and as a final question, because um, you're going to get this a lot, but what is your Desert Island band? It is Black Sabbath. <laughs> Good choice, sir. Good choice. Well, Thank Jeremy, you. it was great talking with you, man. This is a, a real pleasure, and I wish you all the success in the world with the film and upcoming oh. uh, projects. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to follow your career oh, as time you. goes on. Me too. Let's, we'll see what happens. All right, <laughs> Thanks man. so much. Come back. You're going to hear my conversation with director John Carney, who had an indie breakthrough smash, uh, a lo-fi musical, if you will, and I'm sure you've heard of it. It's a film called Once that I consider to be an absolute masterpiece in every single way. So, uh, yeah, his latest involves uh, you know an indie rock band via new wave 80s tradition with a bunch of teenagers so that's that's a real treat it's like we we touch upon a lot of things with that talk for now i wanted to bring up uh an indiegogo project that i'm fully endorsing please go to indiegogo.com type in nowhere mind under the search look for this feature film based out of chicago called nowhere mind by director ben neeson um it's when I saw this trailer, I immediately thought of Philip K. Dick and Shane Carruth. It's almost like if Shane Carruth directed Strange Days, maybe. Um, obviously, I haven't seen the film in its entirety, but by the trailer alone, I was 100% sold to where I wanted to back this campaign wholeheartedly here because it involves the brain, neuroscience, mysteries of consciousness. The film follows uh, Ivan, a troubled student who has recently been diagnosed with schizophrenia. He is desperate to escape his illness, but traditional methods of treatment only seem to make things worse. He begins studying the ideas of a fringe philosopher who teaches that experimental meditation might allow one to escape the physical trappings of the body. As Ivan continues to train his perceived abilities, he grows less concerned with what is possible, but rather by what is right. So we got a little altered states feel going on here. Um, and this, this subject is near and dear to my heart since I do meditate. I do highly believe in this idea of a subconscious reality of sorts. I've um, also watched some YouTube lectures by Thomas Campbell which served as some inspiration for this story. When I read the synopsis, when I watched the trailer, I was beside myself. I cannot wait to see this final film. I want the production to um, be fully backed. So please, please, please just contribute whatever you can. 
five bucks, ten bucks, hundred bucks. Of course, there are perks involved, and I might uh, uh, consider conjuring up some of my own here via Directors Club for this, similar to what we did, what Patrick and I did for uh, Andrew Bemis's most likely. So I really, really want you to go to Indiegogo.com, type Nowhere Mind, uh, seek out Ben Neeson and what looks to be a spectacular film that you can back. So I've done it. I hope you can too. It's an indie thriller based out of Chicago. It's a mystery. It's science fiction. It just looks totally up my alley and I think you're going to dig it too. So give it a look-see. Director John Carney is uh, my next interview subject here. I cannot say enough good things about Sing Street. It is easily one of the best films of the year, if not the best, because it's just so uplifting, so infectious. It fills you with joy from beginning to end. The smile never left my face. Uh, This comes from somebody who is a huge fan of Once and really enjoyed Begin Again. Sing Street takes us back to 1980s Dublin, seen through the eyes of a 14-year-old boy named Connor, who is looking for a break from a home strained by his parents' relationship, and he wants to adjust and fit in somehow. I mean, obviously, he's he runs into some trouble with bullies. A lot of the uh, tropes you would come to expect in a story like this, uh, maybe a John Hughes film, which we do bring up here, is not it's definitely subverted i think it's it's almost like john hughes does the commitments but at the same time it's still got that john carney feel to it that uh you come to love from his very first film at least i have i know he finds just the joy of creating music together he he does mind the make a band formula but it never feels pandering it never feels uh, trite it feels wholly sincere throughout uh, so we're going to get to that conversation here I, I couldn't say enough good things about his latest and I hope you check it out in a the theater you'll most likely want to buy the soundtrack right after here's my conversation with Sing Street director John Carney Uh, it's a true joy to talk with you. Once is one of my all-time favorite movies. Okay. Oh shit. Don't <laughs> comp- that, that, oh, really? Oh no. Now I worry. <laughs> yeah. No. I just. Uh, it seems like you've made a musical trilogy here that embraces something that I identify with wholeheartedly. Music transforms into this life-affirming event. Uh, I, I, I assume. That Sing Street is very autobiographical. So talk about how you managed to capture that feeling of being young, creating something special with your friends, and how much of the film is drawn from personal experience. Um, I mean, I'd say Once is more autobiographical, actually, in a sense. Hmm. Um, Though hard to believe. But I I would identify more with the character of the guy, you know, um, who's missing his girlfriend and his kind of a little bit melancholic and a little bit indulgent and a little bit sorry for himself and a little bit stopped. And uh, then, 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 then the punch the air kid that you see in Sing Street, you know, even though there's dimensions of, of me that are in that, 
Sure. I would, I would actually, if I was being honest, I'd say the closer, uh, I, I would feel closer to once as, as an adult than to Sing Street. You know, that's the way I see the world, I think, more. I really felt like this was kind of a, like maybe your take on a John Hughes movie, because I was a kid from the 80s, too. Yeah. And... I, I had these experiences very similarly, but what was it? What was it like to re- work and record in the studio with uh, a younger demographic? I mean, just in terms of you know, Glenn and Marquetta were obviously experienced musicians. These kids were were not, or were they? They they weren't, but they knew how to play music. My question to everybody that came into the room was like, do you have an instrument in your house, uh, or better still, do you have an instrument in your bedroom? You know, and if mm-hmm. you you're in this film, you know, but that, that, then you've passed the first sort of test in a sense of, of, uh, of music being important. And then if, then if the kids could make me laugh, that was, that was another thing. If, if myself or the casting director or the assistant got a laugh out of these kids, that's sort of the half the journey right there, you know, in casting, in casting a film. Yeah, the lead especially, he's incredibly charismatic. This was really his first, this was completely his first role, actually. Wow. Yeah. He is kind of buckets of, of confidence, 21st century confidence as well. Nobody, yeah. nobody was really that confident in the 80s in Ireland. One of the best elements for me was the transitioning of styles that the band adopts, since I know from personal experience that my band in high school sort of did the same thing. Just, okay, we listen to this band, and now we kind of want to capture that sound, and just because, you know, inspiration comes from all sorts of places. And... It felt a little bit like a commentary on how adolescents try to form their identity through music at that point. That's totally true. It is. It's, it's about being allowed to change your mind, you know, which I think that I, I, I loved changing my mind and I liked people who allowed me to sort of U-turn and go in different direction and not, not have to stick to anything or any tribe. I hated gangs and I hated cliques. I didn't like particularly the idea of we're cure heads and that's my tribe and my loyalty only to this music. I never understood that. Um, and while I'm sure I probably said I was, you know, a mod now or a cure head or whatever, it never lasted particularly long with me. So that's what I'm trying to do with the film is have a sort of a joke on that. That that definitely worked. You, You've written some songs with uh, amazing musicians, like I said, Glenn Hansard and then uh, Greg Alexander for Begin Again. So I see you collaborated with the great uh, Gary Clark this time around. How did you approach the songwriting for this film as opposed to the others? Well, I think, firstly, I was more involved in this film than I was. I I had no involvement in music in uh, once at all. That's all Glenn. Um, And then in Begin Again, I wrote a couple of songs. Um, But this, I guess... I, I, I kind of, <clears throat> I was there, I started writing music very, very early on in this project, like way before writing the script. I had the template for four or five songs in my head on my iPhone or on GarageBand. I had demoed a number of them. And Gary Clark was kind of like, it very, very, was the real key to this movie. Hmm. Um, in the same way that Glenn was, in a sense, the key to the, to the, to the, to once, to the music in once. Um, you need, you know, music is only as strong as its worst song. So, um, so, so, you know what I mean? In, in that sense, and you also need a true one, at least one truly great song. And um, I think I had it with Falling Slowly, um, and was very lucky. 
I don't think I necessarily had it to the same degree with Begin Again. I don't know what you feel about that. But I think I have it here with with um, with uh, Drive It Like You Stole It by Gary Clark. Oh, yeah. But that, that is a hit song. I have no doubt. It translates into any language. It's the same message it, in any language. It's like, it's a complete validation of youth and the energy of youth and the joy of, and it, you know, references other songs, but not in a cloying sort of, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant, brilliant song. And it's a, it, to me, it's a, it could be a very radio-friendly hit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and honestly, I felt I felt similarly about Begin Again because uh, one of my closest friends and I, who you know, he's also a, a music-based, a music journalist. We loved the New Radicals record. Yeah. <laughs> you know, back in the day, and when just knowing the kind of success you know, Greg Alexander has gone on to have as a producer and then working on that soundtrack. We, we were just, we were applauding uh, his work on that, on Begin Again, so. Do you like the soundtrack to Begin Again? Oh, yeah, definitely, oh. 100%. Excellent, yes. yeah. Lost Stars is a, is a classic. I, I, I concur. I can't tell you how transcendent i felt during that scene where mark ruffalo first meets uh Keira knightley for the first time i've had those moments where i'm seeing a solo singer song a writer play in a coffee shop and i'm hearing all the arrangement in my head too so okay. <laughs> that just yeah, felt, like that, that just felt completely honest oh yeah yeah so do you feel that this um the film is very representative of yourself when you were attending sing street school uh, at the time? No. <laughs> okay. No, I did not have any of that confidence or swagger that Ferdia has. Which I had to tone down in the mm-hmm. film. He has such confidence, that kid. You know, he's, he's so likable. He's also, you know, he's, he's, he's a really good-looking kid as well, which is a, is a big... That's where we part a lot on <laughs> looking back at photographs of me in the 1980s, you know. I look like a Dickensian wife. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. I imagine it must have been fun to going through like, well, fun and maybe awkward to some degree, getting nostalgic and looking at old journals and and sort of going back and reliving those experiences too. And I imagine the brother character in this hits home as well because here it sort of reminded me of. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's portrayal of Lester Bangs in Almost Famous, just it's declaring to the younger brother what rock and roll is and what it means to him, that, that stuff is just uh, truly, truly special to me. Um, character, which character do you mean in Almost Famous? I didn't know. Is Philip Seymour Hoffman in Almost Famous? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He plays, he plays Lester Bangs in, in Almost Famous, just like just a really impassioned uh, music freak. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's right. God, I can't believe that that's actually Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's so true. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, just... fine with that movie, but of course. Yeah, so it, is the relationship here with the brother very similar to the one that you have? Not really. <laughs> I mean, that, that, I, I am trying to understand my relationship with my brother in it, but, but the more I see Sing Street, the more I realize, the more cities I watch it in, the more I realize it really is a John Hughes-esque sort of you know, punch the air fantasy movie. 
And I remember that's what Jack Rayner said to me when he read the script, was like, you're, you're going to make a John Hughes film for the Irish audience, which is, which is kind of true. And that was, I think, the intention. I kind of do buy into that stuff. I find it sort of irresistible in a way. Yeah, completely understandable. I mean, those, those films I grew up with, and obviously the way this film plays out, the last, the last act, the last punch, the last song is a total bender, you know, put, putting his arm up in the air. Yeah, uh, kind of a feel to it. So I mean, you, yeah. you you hit another home run here for me. I I have to say this again. Like I've probably said this a few times throughout our conversation, but it really hit home. It truly made me recall what it's like to be a in a band at that age, creating music videos, throwing caution to the wind. Uh, I'm glad it did. I agree. I think I I hope that that's the. Sometimes I read an occasional, you know, cranky article about it, and I'm like. I just don't understand how you, how you, you know, how that song didn't get you. Like, right. I can't understand how somebody would, would watch that sequence, like, drive it like you stole it in the prom and not just smile ear to ear. And it's nothing to do with me. <laughs> to do with a bunch of kids on stage to, to playing music to that song. Like, that has nothing to do with me, except that it's my idea. But, like, I just don't know how that is not, you know, 100% infectious. Well, it was for me, and anyone else who didn't feel that way, well, they're cynics, and to hell with them. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I just want to say I've, I've enjoyed all your work immensely, and I hope we get to see a lot more from you, John, because uh, all three films are very, very special to me, and I felt that way about once, and now I, I especially feel this way about Sing Street. I can't wait for other people to see it, and I can't wait to show it to friends. Oh, man, thank you very much for that. That's great. All right, take care, John. It was great talking with you. Hopefully I'll add a fourth to it down the line. Yes, please do. The more right. the merrier. <laughs> Thanks for being good to talk okay. to you. Okay, good talking to you. Bye. Day, I had played a number of shows and even went on tour twice. One of my uh, stops was in Champaign. I believe it was uh, Morgan Orion's house. And I have to say that one of the most memorable shows I've ever played was opening for two of my favorite songwriters in the same night. Uh, Jordan Mason, who was actually a guest on the Director's Club Gus Van Sant episode way back when. Uh, yeah, he's, you know, we mentioned his incredible talent on, on that particular episode, but uh, he was one of the people that played. And the other is my guest today. And I was blessed to make her acquaintance back then. 
Um, and this was after hearing two of her CDs that uh, I listened to heavily on rotation. They were passed around many folks uh, within the Chicago DIY folk scene. She is a true talent in every way with an original voice that uh, always stands out in a very engaging way. There is no getting past how much I adore both of her records, and fairly recently I checked out her um, new tunes on SoundCloud uh, and also discovered some gems that I've never heard before. So I'm very excited to learn more about the glorious Shelby Cyphers. <laughs> that was a great intro. Oh, thanks. I try. <laughs> and that was a really fun show. I remember that very well. Thank yeah. you for doing it. Oh boy, that was a blast. And thank you, Morgan Orion, for yeah. hosting it. And he's thank he's still going strong too. He's somebody else I should check in with. Yeah. It's been a while. Um but yeah, I just I mean I remember was it like the saw that was in both of your sets, both Jordan's and Shelby and your and, and yours? <laughs> yeah, Jordan did have a saw which he pulled out nightly and and had a lot of fun with. He was he was in the beginning stages of learning how to play the saw, so right. it was sort of all over the place, but we really enjoyed it. Yeah, and he played uh, on the piano. I believe he played his Magnetic Fields cover, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that was really that special. That sounds about right. I want to start off this interview with something very interesting that I came across, because with, with every person I talk to, I try to just do a little prep. Uh-huh. And... I found a really striking post that you made on your Facebook page back in 2013. Um, I don't know if it's weird to have yourself quoted back at you, but here it goes. (laughs) It says, making music is great. It makes us happy. And sometimes we relate to something and that something really drives it home. But making music is not often related to true uh, philanthropy, straight up helping to make the world a better place. And by that, I mean getting your fucking hands dirty. Like volunteering your time to help others selflessly without recognition or reward. I came across this, mm-hmm. and I'm curious if you can elaborate. Because I, I do agree for sure. I'm just curious how strongly you feel. Is music for you something that is obviously fulfilling and wonderful, but not necessarily the driving force for you? Right. It is not, it is not the driving force. I think that doing good and making art or making music can exist in the same spheres. They're not definitely not mutually exclusive, but I think that, you know, of course everyone does what they do for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes I see a misperception of someone's art being perceived as doing good for the world, just for the sake of it being there. And, and that's true Hmm. to an extent. Um, but, but when I see um, people who fight for the rights that I enjoy um, and the rights that others enjoy um, with very little um, recognition and very little support, um, it, it sort of makes me hurt. It makes me hurt in that we lift up people who create things um, for our entertainment and yet don't necessarily always lift up the people who create things, um, you know, those, those giants whose shoulders we stand on, who fought for civil rights, um, gay rights, animal rights, any, anything like that, um, just the whole spectrum. 
um, we don't always lift them up hmm. um, in the same way as we lift up an artist just for the sake of doing their art. And so um, that feeling is still very real to me now um, that um, there was a quote that, that a writer, I heard it on the radio. I was driving late at night and I heard it on the radio and I don't remember her name. Don't remember what she wrote, but she said, and I stopped and I was all alone and I was like, no one else is hearing this. But she said, it's not enough to be a good writer. You also need to be a good person. And that resonated so much with me because I was like, yes, that's, you just said everything I, everything I want to say in my life. You just, you just said it. And, and so when, when I see so many people being (laughs) such horrible people (laughs) to (laughs) others and sort of being idolized, it, it makes me hurt when I, when I see others who need support for doing great things and they don't get it. Well, wow, that's, that's a great point. It's, it, it's something that I, I think I felt too, to some degree, because when I was playing shows or even back when I was in a band, I could never see myself being Mr. Frontman, front and center, not just because of like my introversion. It's more or less, it felt like, it was driven by a need for attention and ego to some degree. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not not to an extreme. You know, it was about the micro level without looking at the macro level. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted a sense of interconnectivity with a larger group of people rather than just serving an audience temporarily with. Not just, you know, I just want to just I don't want to just call it entertainment because it was self-expression, but right even just using the word self it just felt like i'm making it about me a lot of these songs are i this i that um and i think that's actually when i was starting to feel those feelings is when i wrote a song about the west memphis three which you know was something i was very passionate about at the time and i thought like you know what i don't always have to just be writing music that's just about like you know heartbreak or personal experience it's it's good to look at the bigger picture Right. And, and as, as a person who builds a community or as part of a, a bigger community, which uh, musicians and artists often are, you have um, this great gift to be able to share ideas mm-hmm. and make a difference and travel and things like that, that maybe others don't. Um, so you, you often have a platform. Right. Um, so, so, so standing up for other people, you you have the opportunity to do that so much more than than many others will ever have. So it's something I think about. I'm I'm really glad that you made that statement and that I was able to track that down. I was like, hmm. <laughs> that's that's a really interesting place to start because you know you always want to just start with like music, music, music. Let's talk about music, and we are. Um, yeah. I I really want to know what was the first impetus for becoming a songwriter. What was you know, what was the first thing that sparked you to ever pick up a guitar? I can, I can always remember writing, writing on paper, writing. I always had typewriters, just writing, writing, writing. Um, I had pen pals and, um, was big in the postcard X movement when that was a thing. I think it since died. Um, just, just writing. I was always into writing and always wanted to play an instrument. Um, I I started piano lessons when I was a kid from my grandmother, but we we didn't have a lot of money. Um, I had a single mom, blue collar. 
um, we didn't have enough money to get me there basically every week. So I stopped that, but I saw my keyboard and I really enjoyed kind of tinkering around on that. Um, but didn't get very far teaching myself. I don't think I had <laughs> whatever it was that could get me past, um, those first stages of learning to play an instrument. Um, but finally, I think it was like my 16th birthday. I was like, you know, I really, I really like a guitar. And I, I asked for one and my birthday and Christmas are together. So, um, I got a birthday Christmas <laughs> guitar. We had a songwriter couch surfing, uh, at that time. And I think that made me really want to, you know, I was like, wow, not that like, this is what's going to become of me if I <laughs> I'm a singer songwriter. You know, he he had a, a very sad story, like many people do, where he had written songs that um, bands had used and used on the radio and stuff, and then slighted his royalties. Basically, were like, you don't exist, that kind of thing. And so, oh. I, that was a really sad introduction to how that whole system works. But either way, I really enjoyed listening to him play songs and just having a person with a guitar in the house. Nobody in my family really plays music or anything. And, and so I was able to take all those things I'd written and just kind of tinker around with them and have a lot of fun and, um, found that I, I really enjoyed doing it. I mean, your lyrics are always something special, I think. And maybe it, it sort of stems from focusing earliest on writing. Cause I imagine that's, that's true for a lot of singer songwriters is that they're, you know, in high school and just, scribbling in a notebook writing mm-hmm. poetry whenever they can mm-hmm. and then there's almost like an evolution uh, you know like a drive to turn it into something more than just words on a page yeah and Jordan who you talked about was a really big part of that when I met him we had both gone to the same art art school during the summer mm. in high school he went the year before me and um, we met each other when he did a show and I don't know, we were seeing some song and he was like, I would really love, you know, if you would, it would be really great if you played music or something like that. And I was like, Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, that'd be awesome. So, uh, I remember that conversation, you know, and being like, well, I guess it is just that I could just, yeah, I could just do that. I could just try it out. So, um, just having someone encourage you is is huge, um, you know, to, yeah. to make something happen. And that's happened so many times. And I'm so lucky that people have continued to encourage me because I definitely would not have tried or done any of those things with, uh, you know, on my own accord. So, And I think... Um your your relationship with Joe Jordan there is you know it's 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 key to have some inspirational figure who like you said motivates you and i'm glad i'm i'm certainly glad that's happened were there uh, certain musicians and 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 bands and songwriters in the uh, early stages there that uh, also inspired you well we surely i guess the that day that I mentioned was like a, a showcase of some friends, um, sort of a reunion of sorts for this arts summer school that, um, everyone had attended and, and from there kind of spawned a little record label of sorts that we, Oh, was that um, OMAP? Yeah. 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 So, um, 
it was just a great way for us to people all over the country and even out of the country to keep in touch and, and keep each other um, in the loop on what we were doing. And, and so that was always fun, just having that community of people who um, we didn't all make the same kind of music, but we all really had a, a love for each other and just, you know, what the other people were doing and, and just respect for each other. And um, I, there was a guy named Skip who I don't think he even makes music anymore, but he was in a band in Sacramento called E-Stereo. And he played in the airplane over the sea, you know, in, in its entirety for oh, like, geez. I don't know, a reunion or something. The whole album? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, I was in high school and I, I, you know, drove a long way to see it and I was excited and, and, um, I don't know, we got to talking and I had given him a CD and he encouraged me to, he was like, well, why don't you play shows? I was like, I had never thought about it. And so he set me up with my first show and other shows in the future and just kind of took me under his wing a little bit. He's a lot older than me and, um, let me play with, you know, bands who I would never, I don't think get to play with like Chelsea Wolf, who has since gone on to oh, yeah. do really great stuff. Um, I played my first show with her and I was like, wow, this is, this is so great. I, I never thought about it. And so just having, you know, some older people who, I don't know, we're just being kind and um, in- inclusive to a kid in high school who really didn't know what was going on or how anything worked. And um, there are so many people like that who just were kind and accommodating. And and I think those are the people that inspire me the most. Not really people who I necessarily artistically, you know, I'm inspired by, but people who showed me kindness and let me do my own thing, you know, and, and encouraged me to do my own thing. I think those were the people who really made it easier for me to do what I wanted to do or what I <laughs> didn't know what I wanted to do yet, but whatever I did. Yeah. Like-minded mm-hmm. people that, you know, you, you sort of sometimes meet by happenstance and, you know, I just, I'm actually grateful for the high school experience just because being in band slash orchestra was how I met, you know, a drummer who encouraged Mm -hmm. me to collaborate with him. And, you know, having that experience and that build into a friendship to where it's like we're practically hanging out nonstop and to the wee hours of the morning. And, you know, those... it's hard to maintain that as you get older, but you, you sort of long for that collective, uh, you know, whether if it's in a band or just with a large group of people. And I think, and I think that's exactly why the the DIY folk scene was so palpable and just you know everybody together, especially for something like the Southwest Folk Fest around here, or just uh, Planet X Fest, or just a number of different settings really allowed people to not feel um, like they were awkward or isolated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it sounds like over there, yeah, with with OMAP Records, it it was its own collective of like-minded musicians that uh, really bonded together. That's great. Yeah, special. Yeah, for sure. You know, I I, I hear some, like, Coco Rosie in the way you sing too like it's 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 certainly 
a voice that maybe other people could be like, well, there's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but mm-hmm. it's 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 completely your own, and it's really engaging. I think, you know, when you, a lot of people try to, you know, like try to make comparisons just as a frame of reference, not to right. say like, oh, you sound, you're ripping this off or whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But, you know, like, uh, is there are there you know, contemporary musicians that you, um, like listen to regularly or anything like that? You know, I'm, I guess I'm sorry, not sorry to say that I do not seek out music like I used to. I'm so that happens with busy <laughs> and I, and yeah, I told myself it would never happen, but I lied to myself. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know what was to come, but, um, I'm very lucky to live with a DJ Uh, so new music is always on, um, and old music, um, lots of house, soul, funk. Um, we are big listeners of WFMU out of New Jersey, um, which always gives me some, something new to think about and some, some old gym. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of that sound, it didn't. I don't think it came from anywhere. <laughs> yeah, it just came from <laughs> Necessarily. you directly. Yeah, because I, w- I was in this band in high school, and I was the singer. And we sang really loud music, and I screamed a lot. A oh, lot wow. Of screaming. And one day I was like, you know, guys, my throat really hurts. Every time we practice, <laughs> this is really hard on me. I was like, I would like to write a song and just he- hear what my voice sounds like if I'm not trying. And that's what happened and it just was that's this is what my sound voice sounds like when i don't you know try to scream (laughs) and then i just kind of went with that no and it complements the the music so so vividly i I don't know it's you know it's it's quiet but it's intimate and it's you know like run around run around it definitely varies in like production but it never sort of veers from being lo-fi like it's something you recorded in your bedroom it definitely was yeah. <laughs> i definitely did <laughs> yeah and I, I i love that you know like when i read about you know iron and wine and how you know his first record he had to basically whisper or, or sing very quietly not to wake his son in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and that's how his voice sort of developed and yeah, again, there's just that intimacy that makes you feel like you're, uh, you know, listening in on, on, on somebody's inner thoughts, for sure. Mm-hmm. Those first two records, especially, I mean, I I listened to them quite a bit, and, I, and I'm going back to them after, you know, a little bit of a, a lull, I, I was so drawn to the songs all over again, and I think... Uh, I wonder where they come from. I, I, you know, in ter- in terms of was there an emotional state you were in? Was there, uh, you know, a motivating factor to put together a record uh, mm-hmm. initially? Just curious about the initial process. Yeah, I think at that time there was a little bit of encouragement to put. Like this is still thinking, going back to high school at this point when that. F- that I put out a first CD, I had a CD. Um, so Old Map was alive and 
I was like, well, I, I think I can compile some of these songs. And there were definitely, um, all of them came from very different places. Mm-hmm. I shook like a leaf from a tree. My shoes were all soiled and untied. Cause I ran to the coast from the shore. It was a difficult time for me. My my brother had been diagnosed with cancer, and I think I mm. sort of dropped off the face of the planet and went into a really deep depression, which I only recently kind of popped out of. But um, I left school, high school, and didn't do any school for months and months and eventually finished from home. Um, so there were some, there were some rough times. I, I was dating a guy and he like moved away for college and I don't know, it was just emotional. Um, so I, I can definitely, I haven't listened back to any of these, but I can definitely think back and think, wow, that was probably a really dramatic time, but also a time when I needed something to occupy me. Sure. Um, so putting those types of things together and um, all of it was done on um, one of those four track cassette recorder things. So, um, you know, that was really time consuming. Um, I think that was an important way to like, you know, be therapeutic with myself and um, take time to just do something that wasn't thinking about all of the things I couldn't control. That, that was something I, I really could you know, the the therapeutic factor, I think, is mm-hmm. what, is a huge driving force behind putting together a record and making sense out of emotions that are otherwise kind of in flux and chaotic mm-hmm. on the inside. When you put it all together in a record and it somehow makes sense and then connects with people. And so, you know, when you're finishing a song, what is the emotion that you feel when you complete it? Is it a sense of calm and relief or what, what do you feel? Well, it gets stuck in my head. So there's a, um, you know, I guess there's a range of emotions. There's like annoying. It's stuck in my head. And like <laughs> now I, I, for the first time really get excited because I have a band and they're so cool. And I, I just get excited. Like, Oh, I can bring this to them and they will yeah. play it with me and, and they'll make it so magical. <laughs> Um, so like that's now it's a feeling of excitement. I can't say that it always was. And in a lot of ways it was, um, like kind of a stress and, you know, like, uh, I might change this or, or this just isn't right. And if I didn't record at the right time, it just wasn't, it didn't convey the feeling that I needed it, that I wanted it to feel. And I don't know, there, there used to be a lot more stress now. I'm just excited to play it. Yeah, I, I I bet. I mean, having a band definitely creates that dynamic. I think, where it's like, I just I maybe I started out writing something in my bedroom on the acoustic, but mm-hmm. it's gonna again evolve into yeah. something special. Yeah. But you know, there's 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 such a hmm. I'm not trying to think of the right word, but it, 
there is a sincerity behind just putting out music with you in a bedroom on a guitar singing whatever your heart feels. There is. And yeah. and you you mentioned Iron and Wine and and I felt so weird like after listening to Iron and Wine, you know, until my ears bled it with joy. And <laughs> I mean that in a positive way. Uh, those older records that were him and a guitar. And then last year, paying like $40 and going to see him at this place where I bought like a $7 beer. And I hated it. I thought it sounded horrible. And I hated every moment. And I was like, well, I guess I should stick around. Maybe it'll get better. And I was so disappointed. But I was like, you know what? Like, he needs to evolve. And I need to let him do his thing. And if I don't like it, that's my problem. <laughs> like he can do whatever the fuck he feels like doing because that's him. I'm glad he's still doing what he's doing, but I had to like separate myself and be like, he's not mine. <laughs> he's him. And he's going to go off and do great things. And I just might not follow him. I might not continue to follow him <laughs> on that journey. Um, so I understand that like, that's the fate of maybe, more than just him, you know, and maybe playing with a band some people like, some people don't like, some people might like it more and some people like it less. But for me, whatever I'm doing it for, which right now I really feel is just like, um, you know, we all live together. The people in uh, this band is a, a great way for us as busy people to see each other and enjoy each other's company and like get to play shows and things like that. Like for our purposes, it's really great. Um, so if somebody does, you know, if people don't want to listen to it, I really don't care. Like, it's yeah. great if they do, but I really just, you know, that's fine. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll encourage them wholeheartedly. <laughs> believe me. I'll, I will just be singing from the heavens. <laughs> listen to Shelby. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, it's funny that you mentioned that relationship with Iron and Wine's music and how that changed. It's very similar to because I feel like oh, and I think every every musician or at least every music freak of some kind has this experience where you you claim a band in a way, mm-hmm. and that happened with me with Radiohead because I had like mm-hmm. oh you know Pablo Honey was just all over and it felt to me like the most beautiful music and everything was perfect and I just loved everything about it. <laughs> You know, I could, I can, I can give or take creep at this point, but because I don't yeah. <laughs> necessarily feel that angsty, like I don't belong here, kind of stuff. <laughs> but I just, you know, even to this day, I think even you know my my former co-host and I talked about this when we were talking about music. I am, I am kind of n- unhappy with how weird and unmelodic they've become with just mm. like doing droney synthesizer stuff mm-hmm. and. Like, their last couple of records just did not engage me, and I'm kind of like, I want them to pick up guitars, and I want them to rock. And mm-hmm. I know that's unfair. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, yeah, it, it's great to, you know, try new things, and obviously I love stuff like Kid A and Amnesiac and those more experimental things, but, um, you know, I, I just I feel so attached to the sound that they initially had with the bends and things like that. Yeah. To where the, the last one, the King of Lens, I was just like, no, this is not 
the radio head I want. <laughs> but there's nothing wrong with listening to Pablo Honey over and over. It's just the same as I, you know, if I want to listen to Bob Dylan, I'm going to listen to Blood on the Tracks yeah. over and over and over. And I'd rather do that 50 times than listen to 50 Bob Dylan albums. Right. Like, I don't. I don't want to, and that I'm glad he's he's doing his thing. But it's okay, you know. It's okay to not have new things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's no, that's definitely true. I think it's you know I do have like a loyalty to an artist too, where I'm like, okay, they put out a new record, I should listen to it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think my enthusiasm level is what it used to be, and I think that kind of bums me out. Like, it's is it the age thing? Am I just not finding it uh, a resonant? in the way that I did when I was younger, when everything was new and exciting. And now it's like, because of technology and because of the internet, it's content, 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 that mm-hmm. a lot of things either get lost in the shuffle or you, you just experience music very differently than shopping at a record store or uh, hearing yes, about it so through friends. It's very different now. And, you know, that's... I, that's, I think that that's, there was a purity behind what you know putting together your own record label like that you know and certainly the way people like tony presley would tour and Mm -hmm. you know jordan's record and i I think like there is just something about that experience and the experience of even if it's just like a cdr and a sleeve yeah that you get while playing you know a show with another diy folk artist it's something tangible it is it's so nice to be able to be given that and and uh, i actually just i went home to california like two weeks ago i drove home to surprise my mom for her birthday and she had like two boxes of things that were mine and one box was photos and another box was all my cdrs (laughs) that i had collected from various people like when we you know did tradesies at a show or whatever and and it was so nice to go through them and be like, I remember that show. Yeah. I remember that show. Oh, that was fun. And so it was just like going through. It had, I didn't even have to listen to them, but it was almost like going through old photos. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it was so cool. Yeah. it's. I felt so old in the, that moment. That experience of something tangible in a shoebox, it's very different than like flipping through a bunch of Facebook photos or something. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a different, I think the brain registers it very differently. And yeah. th- I think the emotional memory is very strong because you can think back to, Oh, I played this show with this person and this thing happened. And I guess that would lead me to my next question. Are there any sort of vivid memories that you have of, of being on tour, whether if it's with Jordan or mm-hmm. on your own? There are a lot of a lot of great great memories. Um I think the most significant one which I think about a lot is when I played in Jackson, Mississippi, which is where I live now. Mm. Um and I played in a warehouse in a neighborhood that was mostly abandoned um like in an industrial district in in Jackson and um really was the best show um that I think ever I'd ever played in, up up until that point and for a long time after that. Um just the most caring and supportive people and um 
all the bands who played and the space was amazing. I met my now partner at that show. Um, and, and now we live in the warehouse next door to that, which we just purchased. So I get to see that, um, spot every day, which Aww. is, which is really interesting and, um, really special to, you know, get to, to have that little piece of very personal history right here. But, um, you know, just getting to see different places and, and have, again, an excuse to do it and sort of a way to begin to talk to people. I have a lot of social anxiety. It's hard for me to just start up a conversation. It's hard for me to have small talk, but if you have a, if I'm, if I'm working, (laughs) if I'm on the job, if I have a reason to be somewhere and do something, I have a lot better time. Um, so I really enjoyed just getting to have a reason to be somewhere and a reason to have conversations. And, um, it kind of creates a gateway for me. Um, so there are so many great moments and, and most of them come from, not necessarily the show itself, but again, going back to the kindness that people showed me. And, um, I like, for instance, someone who had a house on a lake who, you know, let us play on the dock on the lake and brought all their friends. This is like a, I don't know, a 15 year old girl or something. And her parents, her mom washed and mended our clothing, made us breakfast. I mean, just like the whole works, you know, just like the nicest nicest people in the world just because her daughter liked our music she was like well my daughter likes your music so I'm going to you've done something for her and I'm doing this for you and I was just like oh my god this is amazing you know it just it really warms my heart and it still does and so those are the things that I I think I enjoyed the most um were just the the way that it opens opens that door for people to be able to show kindness back and forth and, um, you know, invite others into their space, tell you about their lives and, you know, their experiences and why they are where they are, you know, in the country. It's a big place. It's, it's wild to think back to a show that I played in Burlington, Vermont, because I went there just thinking, oh, it's just going to be another coffee shop and, you know, I'll Mm -hmm. just play, play my set and that's that. And then, you know, I walk in there, and first the the owner tells me, "Hey, is it okay if um, uh, <laughs> the bass player from Fish, uh, you know, comes by after your set and plays a set?" What? <laughs> I'm like, "What? Well, of course I'm not gonna. What am I gonna do? Say no? It's your place." But he was just like asking me that, just to be kind and just be like, "Is that cool, man?" And I'm like, yeah, of course that's cool. Uh, and that ensured a much bigger turnout. Oh it was just sort of gosh. like a last-minute addition. He, like, called or something and he oh said, hey, gosh. I feel like playing tonight or something. And, <laughs> and that was surreal. And then after the set, you know, which was really, I felt really good about it, you know, usually I, I, I try to meet somebody or at least hang out or, you know, talk with other people as opposed mm-hmm. to being, you know, socially anxious too. But it was... The first time maybe on that tour where a couple a little bit older, maybe in their 40s or early 50s even, just said, hey, we want to buy you a beer. (laughs) Aww. And they did. And not only that, you know, they, at the end of the night, they were like, do you have a place to crash? And I said, uh, no. And they gave me their couch. And then in the morning, they made me breakfast, which was just great. 
Yeah, you, you know, and uh, a lot of people get down and you know, just... They're sort of fueled by pessimism sometimes, and I, I understand that if you just watch the news, it's very easy to get into that mentality mm-hmm. of, like, well, it, the world is evil and there's no hope, but little moments like that and kind gestures sometimes randomly like that just you know warm your heart and give you the sense of humanity mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm glad that good people like you get to have those experiences and you know hearing that you know you went through some depression and experienced social anxiety i think i think music allows us to not only confront maybe some demons or come to terms with who we are it, it, it like you said it gives you a reason to get out and not just sit in your yeah. bedroom and make records it does it really does and it, and it gives you a way to process um all the strange things in my case that my brain is doing that i don't have any control over so yeah. you know to be able to reflect on them through a song and be like oh that's what was going on and and it, it's helped me think of you know trigger points it's helped me think of you know things to look out for you know sure it's um yeah I, w- I wish it was easier to control but it it really it really does help to think about it and reflect on it in a more objective way and i think that that helps i do the best that i can try and stay calm when the shit hits the fan try to understand This too will pass. Try to understand. The song Are You Devo was mm-hmm. kind of a. It, it's probably the one song that, you know, if you type in your name on a music blog, it pops up. And yeah. There's a lot of people have written about it and done remixes, and there's YouTube covers. Uh, so I, was that just like released as a, a lone single was it ever put on a record of any kind or it was released as a single with two remixes um for we heart arts which is a, oh, a right. friend of mine and uh he puts them out <clears throat> to support um arts arts programs for kids and so um it originated um you probably know Stephen ray morris he yeah he uh, made a little video and um, it was like five minutes long, and um, f- I think there were five songs, and five of us, like there was like the meeting song, the like falling in love song, the breakup song, and it like, these songs played throughout this video, and huh. this was like a We Heart Arts thing. The strangest thing is, a girl I went to high school with ended up being the person in the video, unbeknownst to me until I saw it, which oh, wow. was bizarre. Um, but anyhow... Um, they picked, you know, my song out from that to do a single for, and, um, it, yeah, it was a fun project. I really love working within those boundaries and being like, oh, well, I need to think of a, because I, I think mine was like the falling in love song or something like that, um, or at least I would imagine it was, but uh, that video probably exists somewhere. So, so yeah, that's how that song came about. Yeah, that's a that's a great song. It's 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 so infectious and. You know, the line of, I get that same strange feeling next to you as when I put my favorite record on. Mm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's, yeah. We've all been there. Yeah. Yeah. 
of that and I'm really excited to hear where you're going to be headed especially now you have this band I, mm-hmm. I, I I got in touch with you back in February because of the video you posted that just blew me away uh, oh, Death or Docked Pay thank you is that the direction you're probably headed in in general with the yeah band? a lot of songs are sounding like that uh, nice. I think it's been a way for us to um, all kind of get out our love of like '90s alternative rock, yeah. um, which we all mutually hold, uh, and I'm so lucky for that. And I am beyond lucky to have two uh, jazz musicians in my band oh, nice. <laughs> who are just insanely talented people who have spent their literally their whole lives playing their instruments, and and so. I, I get to like present a song and then they just like get to make all this wonderful magic. And um, so I think that's definitely the, you know, a lot of things are starting to sound a, a lot like that. And we probably, um, our goal is to just record when we can, as we feel like it. Like I said, we sure. all live together, so we have time and, uh, just release things one by one whenever I, I don't have the urge to put everything together and package it. Um, because it's just not, I don't know. I, I don't feel like it's needs to be consumed that way. I don't feel like it's worth the stress for me, <laughs> honestly. No, that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of the direction it's headed towards where, People just put a couple couple songs on SoundCloud or Bandcamp, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, it's not even, we're not really record focused, and I know a lot of people get down about that, but at the same time, if that's how you feel, then that's what you should go go with, I think. Right, Don't yeah, I, I absolutely see the value in putting out a record, although for me personally, by the time I would have enough songs that I would want on a record... It's the process starts all over, and that's been the cycle of my life <laughs> for the last ten years. Of like, I'd never want any of these these amount of songs on a record together. You know what I mean? Like they're too different. I don't have the same feelings for them anymore. I just want to put them out when I'm excited about them. that excitement never goes away <laughs> i hope so too i think i think i just need people to continue encouraging me and and the band has done that it's given me a like accountability 
like, well, it's been a week since we've done this. You know, we got to do this. Whereas if it's just me, I can, you know, I can call my own bluff over and over again. Uh, and just never practice. <laughs> um, but a yeah, band really you can't keeps rush me accountable. Ins- you can't rush inspiration sometimes. <laughs> you know, I mean, even if you you have those two records to your name, you put out songs whenever you want to put out songs, and people will discover them. You know, there's there is just this interesting six degrees of separation that's become like six million degrees thanks yeah. to the internet, uh, yeah. which which I'm grateful for for sure. But mm-hmm. I think I think I think people, you know, if you build it, they will come. Essentially, that's what I'm trying to get at. If you just yeah. Even if it's not like a full blown record, if you maintain something like your Facebook fan page or a Bandcamp or just one or two places, even if it's something like Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, they'll 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 gravitate towards you if they're interested. And I think right. I think with your your engaging personality, your incredible talent, I really think people will just flock. I really do. And I, I'm like I'm 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 set on promoting whatever you put out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'll be sure to let you know. Yeah. I, I mean, certainly <laughs> there's gonna be there's gonna be so- song clips interspersed here and there and I will link accordingly so people can check out your stuff because i think they should and i'm really really glad that you're continuing to write songs when i saw that new video i just lit up like a christmas tree and (laughs) so keep it going in other words you know um yeah i will too and if you go on tour don't be a stranger to chicago area please (laughs) what was that those are my dogs. <laughs> Someone walked into the space where I was sitting, and they started protecting me. Oh, sorry. About are they that. trying to protect you from Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> they heard Chicago and they got all scared for it's you. Okay. I know Chicago can be scary. No, that's fine. No, okay. They stopped. They found out it was actually just the other person who lives here. Oh, good. <laughs> well, Shelby, I really had a great time talking with you. And uh, we'll be in touch, and hopefully at some point in the next year or two, or whenever you can venture out to tour, our paths will cross again. Yes, I hope so. And thank you so much for this opportunity. It was really fun to be able to to think and talk and process all this information. I appreciate that. Oh, sure. Anytime. We'll talk okay. again very soon. <laughs> Good deal. Okay. Take care, Shelby. You too. That's a wrap for this edition of the Pop Culture Club Podcast. I cannot thank you enough for listening to these 
three conversations with three very talented people. Two directors inspired by music and a musician inspired by compassion. Special thanks to the kind folks at uh, Allied Marketing for allowing both Jeremy Saulnier and John Carney to appear on the show. And of course, big thanks to Shelby Cyphers for coming on this episode. Please do check the show notes for links to Shelby's records and support her music, whether it's through listening over on SoundCloud or buying her work over at Bandcamp. The next official Pop Culture Club will probably arrive sometime in late May and expect an interview very soon with the one and only Dan Wilson. He's the frontman for Semisonic and producer for Adele's Someone Like You, amongst many other credits that you will not believe. So I'm looking forward to uh, finally getting to talk with him. Please visit nowplayingnetwork.net to check out my other podcast, Directors Club, as well as the wonderful shows Vinyl Emergency, Movie Madness, and Supporting Characters, hosted by three excellent new podcasters. It's a heck of a network going on there. So you can also send an email to nowplayingnetwork at gmail.com to contact me, or visit popcultureclub.net for all the archived interviews and episodes. Have a great night. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>